Good morning. So great to uh, be up here this morning. Um, I just want to say what an honor it is to be able to stand before you this morning and be able to uh, divide the Word of God. Um, This morning we are going to be in John chapter 17. So if you have Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to John 17. And as you do that, let me pray for us. Father, God, we are so thankful for your word, God, for your truth. God, and I pray that that is what is proclaimed this morning. God, as we look into your word, God, that you would lift it high. God, that you would speak directly to us right where we are, whether we're at home, online, or in these pews this morning, God, that your word would be what penetrates our hearts. God, that it would not be my mouth speaking, but that it would be you speaking through me. God, allow your Holy Spirit to fill me and hide me behind your cross. God, we pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. I have a question for you this morning. Have you been praying for the church? And I'm not necessarily talking about Taylor's. I'm talking about the big C church. Have you been praying for the body of believers, the believers across the world? It's a good thing that we are. Now I wonder, have you been praying for Taylor's? The good thing, the beautiful thing that we're going to see this morning is that Jesus himself over 2,000 years ago was praying for believers. Jesus 2,000 years ago was praying for us as a body of believers, Taylor's First Baptist Church, and he is still interceding on our behalf. And I have to believe that as he still intercedes on our behalf this morning, he is still praying the same prayer that he was praying in John chapter 17. See, many times in scripture, we see that Jesus withdrew to pray. We never get to read or see the words that he prayed in these times that he withdrew. But man, John chapter 17 we get to read, we get to hear the very words that he prayed to his heavenly father. So as we start today, let's just set the stage for our time in John 17 so we can fully grasp the beauty of Jesus's words. See, in John 13, Jesus and his disciples have gathered together in the upper room Jesus washes the disciples' feet. They begin to have this Lord's Supper. He begins to uh, give kind of his last statements to them. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Um, No one comes to the Father except through me. I've gone to prepare a place for you. John 15, he says, I'm the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John chapter 16, he tells them that in this world, that they're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer, take courage, take heart, I have overcome the world. And that gets us to John 17. And in John 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the 11 disciples in the room. And then 
John 20, John 17, 20 through 26, Jesus turns his attention to the future believers. And I want us to read verse 20 just as we start this morning. It says this, it says, I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. If you have believed in Jesus this morning, that is us. So Jesus not only says, hey, I'm about to say some things to them, but also everything I said to the disciples also applies to them. So John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. See, in John chapter 2, after Jesus turns the water into wine, he says, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, twice he says, the hour has not yet come. In John chapter 12, he says, the hour is close but still has not yet come. And then right here in John 17, he says, the hour has come. The hour the entire world had been anticipating. The fulfillment of a promise made in the garden that God would send a rescuer to save humanity from their sins. The moment when everything will change, when sinful creatures can once again enjoy fellowship with their creator, when spiritual life will be victorious over spiritual death. And at the climax of this hour, Jesus stops to pray. A pause right at the doorway of the cross to take a moment to cry out to his heavenly father. So we're going to read a portion of John chapter 17 here. And as we do, I want you to circle or underline or highlight or notice every time that Jesus says the word glory or a form of it. Verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Skip down to verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Skip down to verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. 
First point, if you guys are taking notes, is that Jesus prays that we will glory, glorify God. Jesus prays we will glorify God. Now, can there be more of a churchy word than glorify or, or glory? You don't just like walk into your work or into your house and be like, oh, the glory, right? It's such a churchy word or it's set aside for God himself, right? And it's obviously important to Jesus. It's obviously key to this prayer since he says it eight times. So what is it? What does the word glory or glorify mean? Well, it means two things. One of two things or sometimes both. The first one, and this is in your notes, sometimes glory is the visible expression of God. It's the wow. It's, it's all that we might imagine if we were to physically see God. Brightness, a, a, a blinding experience, right? It's what Moses wanted to see when he prayed, Lord, show me your glory. And God said what? No can do, Moses. Sorry, no man can look on my face and stay alive, right? It's the visible expression of God. It's just as what David just prayed when Isaiah saw, uh, saw a vision, right? In Isaiah 6, and, and he says uh, that, that the cherubim and the, the seraphim, they were saying, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory, So it's the visible, it's the physical expression of God. The other thing that glory can be is that glory is also the valued attention toward God. It's the valued attention toward God. It's where the attention of God's people is turned toward him. When our focus is fully put on God. We are glorifying him. We are pointing to him. The word itself means to have a good opinion of or to make renown or to place value upon. So in verse four, when Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth, that's the idea. Or in verse six, I have revealed your name to the men you gave me from the world. It's as if to say, Father, the way that I have lived my life, I have put you on center stage. I have put the spotlight on on you, and I have passed that on to these guys to do the same. The number one priority for a church and for a believer is to bring glory to God, to point to him, to to direct glory to him and him alone. Taylors, our number one priority is to glorify him. That's what we do when we gather in times like this. When we gather and we sing praises, we sing glory to your name. That is why we are here. But it's also something that we do on a personal level. Let's say that we were to, you were to leave here this morning and you were gonna drive to Charleston. On your way to Charleston, there would be two different kinds of signs. One would be a billboard. A billboard is, is large, often multicolored, 
Now they have like scrolling screens that you're like, you're not supposed to text and drive, but I'm looking at this scrolling screen of a billboard. Anyway, it's to draw your attention to it, to sell you something. It wants you to look at it. Then there's these other signs along the road. As we're driving to Charleston, they might say, Charleston, 100 miles. Charleston, 30 miles. They're very plain. They're just pointing you to something else, pointing you to a destination. Let me ask you this morning, are you a billboard or are you a road sign? Are you pointing people to you or are you pointing people to your destination, to your holy heavenly father? You see, the world obviously wants us to just be focused on ourselves. You look up um, self-help books on Amazon, a quick, quick search for that, 850,000 books. Self Matters by Dr. Phil, The Sacred Self, The Self-Aware Universe. Or I could get my phone out and turn right here and Take a little snapshot. We call that a selfie. All these youngsters and their craziness, all this self-driven society that we live in. This is why worship is so important in the life of the believer and the church because it helps remind us that it is not about us. Worship is this. Worship is turning our mind's attention and our heart's affection toward God as we respond to him personally and corporately because of who he is and what he has done. See, Jesus prays that we would keep our eyes focused on him and that we would only bring glory to his name and point others to his name and draw attention to his name and make his name renowned. The second thing that I want us to see this morning is that Jesus prays that we will know the word of God. Look at verses six through eight with me. Jesus says this, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse eight, for I've given them the words that you gave me. Jesus prays that we will know his word. Father, Jesus says, Father, I've taken the word which reveals who you are and I've passed it along to my disciples that they might learn about you and bring glory to your name. So he's praying that the church, the believers will know his word. What did the disciples do with this? 
in Acts, as the church is being launched, right? They, they're preaching the word. They're teaching the word. People are coming to know Jesus left and right. And then it says, we get a glimpse into the early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayers. First on the list there is the apostles' teaching. What were they teaching? They're teaching the word of God. There's a reason why it's first on the list. It wasn't that they gave themselves to love or they gave themselves to prayer. Isn't prayer important? It wasn't that they gave themselves to to singing. Why? It's because the word of God, it teaches us how to love. The word of God is what teaches us how to pray. The word of God, it, it declares to us why we are singing, why we are doing the things that we're doing, because the word of God is our foundation. And I'll take it one step further. Any church that does not put the word of God as its foundation will be imbalanced, weak, and confused. There's a story of a village in Europe, and they had a clock tower. And every, every day, people would walk by this clock tower, and they'd look at their watch, and they would set their watch by what the clock tower said. One day, the clock tower got broken. The glass got broken, and so the hands of the clock, they were exposed. And so a man one day decided that he would walk past that clock, and he said, Huh, that, that clock's not right. So he reached up and he changed the clock. And the next guy, he walked past and he, that clock's not right. Changed the clock. And the next guy, and the next guy, and the next guy. Until nobody knew what time it actually was. Because what the common authority was had been changed. Now listen, that is the word of God. When we lose the foundation of the word of God, we lose our common authority. So the church is to know the word of God. That's why the writer of Hebrews talks about the word of God so plainly in chapter four, verse 12, he says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Church, I have no words that are going to change your life, but the word of God does. It doesn't just have them, but the promise is that these words will change your life. If you open your heart to hear them, it will pierce you to your very core and will change you. The third thing that Jesus prays is that we will impact a lost world with the word of God. That we will impact a lost world with the word of God. Check out verses 14 through 18 with me. It says this, I have given them your word. 
and the word has, has hated and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Check this out, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We are on a a mission as believers. We are on a rescue mission, just as Jesus was sent into the world. So listen, church. We cannot become a bless me club. All right, Josh, you got 30 minutes this morning. Just bless me. Give me the blessing this morning. And we walk out of here and we say, oh, that, that sermon, it just blessed me. Or mm, I wasn't really blessed by that sermon this morning. Man, that, those songs, I loved those songs this morning. They were just, they hit me right here. Or man, those songs, they just weren't very good this morning. They weren't, weren't a blessing to me. Newsflash. That's not what it's about. We cannot become inward self-focused. Remember, we are to glorify his name. We cannot become us Focused because why we come in here is to receive the word so that we can take it to a lost and dying world, so that we can impact the world around us. There's something very important here that we can easily forget, and it's found in verses 16 through 18, where Jesus says that we're not of this world system. But we are in this world system. It's not an accident that we are here alive right now in 2020. Jesus has sent us into the world intentionally. We're not to be dragged down by the world, but we are to impact the world with the gospel. Let me show you something. Look at verses three and four. Jesus says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then in verse five, he says, bring me back to glory, Father. See, Jesus saw, saw life on this earth as a stopping off place, as he was on his way back to the Father. He said, mission accomplished, now back to the Father. So if this world is so temporary, why do we not treat it that way? I think often Christians, we, uh, it's like we're in an airport, right? We're in an airport, our flight leaves in just a couple hours, but, but we react as if, we're going to be there for a while. So I'm going to go into the bathroom and I'm just going to decorate the bathroom. It's going to look all nice and, and pretty. And somebody's going to walk up and Josh, what are you doing? Just decorating the bathroom. Why? Your flight leaves in like two hours. 
Well, I want to be comfortable. I want to. I want to have all of my comfort here, and we we live and we act as if this is our home. And and it's not. Sure, it's it's okay to be comfortable in life while you're here, but how tight is your hold on that comfort? How tight is the grasp that you hold on this comfortable life that we live? What is our main focus? See, one of the final things that Jesus said to his disciples was to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. That is the assignment of every believer. And how have we responded? These aren't in your notes, but if you want to write these down, you can. I think we've responded in five ways. Many have isolated themselves. So it's like this. The world is bad. The only way for me to not be bad is to isolate myself. So like a bunch of years ago, we had like this monastic movement where they built these monasteries and it's like, I'm only going to live here and I'm going to quarantine myself from the world. And now 2020 quarantine means something completely different and it gives us twitches and stuff. Okay. The second response is not to isolate, but it's to, to insulate. And how do we insulate ourselves? We insulate ourselves by saying the world is, the, the world is bad and it's my job to say that they're bad. They're bad, they're bad, they're bad. And that's going to insulate me from them. There was a group of people like this in scripture called the Pharisees. Pharisees never evangelized. They didn't try to impact a lost and dying world. In fact, they condemned Jesus for doing just that. The third response that believers can have is that they can just vegetate. Vegetate means that you're just apathetic. You just don't really care. You know, I know all the people out there in the world, yeah, they're going to hell, but hey, got my ticket and I'm good. I'm just going to vegetate. Another response that would be unbiblical is to, we can imitate the world. We just want to be like them. We think unless we're cool and hip and world-like, the world won't be attracted to the gospel. So I'm going to do everything that I can do to be like the world so that the world can become like me. Wrong. The last response, the best response, the biblical response is to permeate the world. I am salt and light. I will go into the world and impact the lostness with the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You know what else he said? You are the light of the world. That's what we are. We're here this morning in environments like this to sing and bring glory to his name, to learn and to grow and to be fed. And that is a part of a light source so that we can go and impact the world. Allow me to illustrate it to you like this. And this is my favorite illustration of all. Anybody know what that is? 
It's a glow-in-the-dark star, a glow-in-the-dark star. And if this was really cool and we didn't have any windows, we could just shut all the lights off, and this would start glowing. And you would see this glow-in-the-dark star in the darkness. Here's what I believe. I believe when you are surrendered to Jesus Christ, you are a glow-in-the-dark star. We are to permeate the darkness of this world. When we go into places or surrounded by people that don't know Jesus, we should be shining brightly. Here's what else I know about a glow-in-the-dark star. If I leave this in the dark, what happens to it? Begins to fade. You can't see the star anymore. That's why it's so important for us to come back to gatherings like this, to come back to our personal time in the word, because that's when our light source, the one that says, I am the light of the world, fills us up with his light. He fills us up with his light. And then he says, you are the light of the world, go. See, we can't just remain in darkness if we want to permeate the world with Christ's light. You are a glow-in-the-dark star. Live that way. The fourth thing, the last thing that Jesus prays is that we will be a unified force as we carry out the mission. Turn your attention to verses 20 through 26. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you're a believer this morning, listen up. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even though you have loved me, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, what does this unified force mean? Jesus prays for us to be unified four times here. He prays for us to have unity. Now, does that mean that we can have different denominations? Shouldn't have Baptist and Catholic and Lutheran and Presbyterian and all that stuff. We, we can't have that stuff. No, that's not what it means. Does it mean that every Christian in town is to meet in one big building? No. 
And that's definitely not going to happen. Hashtag 2020. Okay. The idea isn't uniformity where we believe the same thing about every topic as Christians. What it does mean is this. Verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. See, the unity that Jesus prays for is the unity that mirrors the unity between the Father and the Son. This unity centers on the truth about God revealed in his word. You see, truth is the basis of unity. This goes against everything that we hear in society. We're told to minimize the truth and focus on just what we agree on, ignoring the rest. See, genuine unity never comes where the truth is discarded because unity is the byproduct of each disciple clinging to the truth about God. In the sport of rowing, rowing in a canoe, unity is, is key. To get to and maintain optimal speed, the, the oars have to leave the water and enter the water at the same time. And the way the rowers do this is by listening to the coach in the boat. The coach doesn't row. He sits in the back of the boat and, and calls out the strokes. The coach is the only one facing forward and can, can see where they're going. So listening to him is, is key. And when they do that, the boat flies over the water. Listen to this, church. Unity doesn't come from everyone rowing their hardest, but from everyone submitting to a single voice. We as the church must submit to the voice of God. And when we do that, we will grow more and more of the same mind. Our thoughts and desires and intentions will begin to mirror God's and we will experience a unity that is unfamiliar to the world. Jesus prays four times for unity. But why? Why do we as a body, tailors, need to be unified? Verse 21. Pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, unity among Christians proves the authenticity of the gospel. It proves that Jesus is who he says he is. That is the way that we impact the world around us. We must be unified. We must put our petty differences to the side and realize how we all came to Jesus as sinners and that there's unity in his Holy Spirit. Because when we're not unified, what does that do? If unity authenticates the gospel, then disunity will show the world that gospel should just be discredited. Unity is so important. 
because it is in our unity that the world will believe the genuineness of our faith. So as we close, I say that we join Jesus in praying for four things. That we would bring, as a personal believer and as tailors, that we would bring the greatest glory to God. That we would know the word of God because it's the word of God that changes lives. That we would impact a lost world with the message of Jesus. And that we would, that, and that we would have a magnetic unity like the world so desperately seeks. If you don't know this Jesus, or if you're struggling with what it looks like to impact the world around you, I'm gonna be here this morning. I'm gonna have a mask. If you need to come pray or talk, or maybe you just need to come to the altar and pray for the unity of our body so that we can make the authenticity of the gospel real, I would invite you to do that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we pray, God, that we would be bringing you the greatest glory possible. God, that it would just be about you and bringing your name renown and not about us. God, I pray, God, that we would know your word because it's your word that changes us. It's your word that can impact a lost and dying world around us. God, and that people would look at us as believers, that they would look at us as tailors and they would see our unity and that it would prove the authenticity of who you are, Jesus. God, we love you. Move in however you would move this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand.